Welcome to The Advocast, a conversation with the advocates for human rights. I'm Lindsay Grising. I'm Lisa Borden. And I'm Jennifer Prestall. We're some of the advocate staff members joining you for this episode. Mid-recording session this week, we received word that the jury had returned a verdict in the Chauvin trial. Needless to say, emotions were high as the entire world held a collective breath for accountability. The advocate's staff joined together to await the verdict and listen. Here is that moment. The use of that this was a lawful use of force. And, you know, in our past episodes, we've had experts talk about that as well. Um, and then in the defense's closing, they really just kind of wrapped it up and poo-pooed, kind of like, as you're saying, Lisa, the flippant approach to it, just saying like, well, you heard some people saying this, but pretty much everyone thought that this was a lawful use of force and that, you know, Chauvin uh, did what he was trained to do again with that statement about him being trained to do this um, and really neglecting that he um, wasn't trained to do this. They have a verdict. What? Already? Yes. Oh my God. I thought they would wait till tomorrow. They haven't announced it yet, but but they have said they reached a verdict. Oh my God. Okay, so that changes. All right, for the jury. All right, please be seated. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.44 p.m. Signed, juror four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Signed by jury four-person, juror number 19. Same caption, verdict count three. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at 1.45 p.m. Jury four-person 019. Members of the jury, I'm now going to ask you individually if these are your true and correct verdicts. Please respond yes or no. Juror number two, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number nine, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 19, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 27, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 44, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 52, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. 
Juror number 55, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 79, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 85, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 89, is this your, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 91, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Juror number 92, are these your true and correct verdicts? Yes. Are these your verdicts, so say you one, so say you all? Yes. 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 Members of the jury, I find that uh, the verdicts as read reflect the will of the jury and will be filed accordingly. I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota for not only jury service, but heavy duty jury service. Well, we just witnessed history. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was just sort of because it was after the um, guilty verdict had been announced, but it was really meaningful for me to hear the jury, each member of the jury say yes. You know, like you could definitely, you know, women, men, a uh, couple sounded like English wasn't their first language. It just really sort of reflected the, it, for me, it was almost like this, you know, speaking on, on behalf of the community, which and I guess technically, technically they, do, they are, but. The tone and some of their voices too, they're just saying one word, but some of them said it with a lot of meaning. Karin Long is a staff attorney in our women's rights program and a former prosecutor for Ramsey County in Minnesota. She was with us when the verdict came in and joins us now to talk about what we can expect from sentencing and appeal. So now that we have three guilty verdicts in the Chauvin trial, let's talk a little bit about what the sentencing is going to look like and what the appellate prospects might be. Karin, what do you think? Well, we had three different guilty verdicts, as you said, um, and the court set the sentencing out for about eight weeks from the date of the verdicts. Um, and just quickly, what will happen between now and then is the probation officer, uh, a, a probation officer will be assigned and will conduct a pre-sentence investigation, meaning they'll do kind of a whole social and criminal history of Mr. Chauvin, um, looking into his background in terms of family, his the way, growing up, education. Obviously, they'll look into his career background. Um, and presumably, there's been some discussion that he had some infractions as a police officer. And I would imagine some of those may appear in this pre-sentence investigation. And then he'll have an opportunity to give his side of the story if he wants to. And then, of course, the family of Mr. Floyd will also have an opportunity to give some input as the victims in this case. So the judge will get a document called a pre-sentence investigation report that will give him some background before he does the sentencing. And then um, in terms of what the sentence looks like, there are three different offenses. So the media has talked a lot about the maximum sentences for each one of these offenses, but actually Minnesota has a Minnesota Sentencing Guidelines Commission. So from the most serious down to the less serious, um, the penalties that are included in the sentencing guidelines grid for the second degree unintentional murder, the range of, of months available for that um, is 128 months to 180 months. 
And um, so the typical in the middle of that range would be 150 months. Um, and the same penalty then is available for the third degree murder. Um, and again, that's the range that our Sentencing Guidelines Commission has said would be appropriate for, I'm assuming Mr. Chauvin has no criminal history. So for someone without a criminal history, that's the range that's, that the judge has to follow um, unless he makes a decision to depart from the guidelines. And in Minnesota, when you're convicted of three different offenses for the very same behavior, you don't serve all three of the sentences. You serve only the longest one. So the way it works is the court will announce a sentence on the second degree unintentional murder offense. And actually he probably will not announce any sentence on the other two penal on the other two offenses because um, you only serve the most serious of the offenses that you're convicted of. He's, he remains convicted of them, but in terms of the sentencing that the Department of Corrections needs to know about, um, it'll only be the second degree unintentional that he's convicted of. I'm glad you cleared that up, Karen, because I, it seems to me like there's been a lot of talk about, you know, many, many years um, that, that I think is based on the incorrect assumption by a lot of people that he's going to be sentenced for all three of these. Offensive. Right. Talk about the difference between, for example, federal sentences and Minnesota sentences. We don't talk about hundreds of years. We talk about hundreds of months. So um, the aggravating factor come into play because I've, I've heard discussion about that. And I think you mentioned earlier that it could have been decided by the jury if Mr. Chauvin chose that, but he didn't. So how does that work? Right. So the state has given notice that it intends to seek an aggravated penalty or a duration or excuse me, a departure from the guideline sentence. And if the court is going to depart or change the guidelines sentence, they must have um, facts beyond a reasonable doubt that demonstrate that an aggravated sentence is appropriate. In this case, there were more than there was more than one child under the age of 18 that saw this offense happening. And as we've seen from the video, the younger child in particular is clearly a child. And Mr. Chauvin could clearly see that she was there and present for the whole thing. So where a child is actually able to observe or hear the offense being committed, that's an aggravating factor. Um, I don't know whether there are any other aggravating factors that apply. It's possible that the court could find a violation of trust um, given the high level of responsibility that, that a police officer has when they have someone in custody. Um, so that's another possible aggravating factor. Um, and a person has a constitutional right to have those facts the presence of a child, the presence of a trust relationship, to have those facts determined beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury. So that is a Sixth Amendment constitutional right. But we saw after the verdict came in that Mr. Chauvin waived his right to that determination by the jury. So he and his counsel sounds like had talked about that quite a bit. And he had determined that he would have Judge Cahill make that determination. And if he decides, for example, which is fairly likely that a, that this offense happened in the presence of a child, he can 
depart from the sentence. He can add 10 months or 24 months, or he can double the presumptive guideline sentence. It's very much within his discretion. He can also triple the sentence, but that is highly unlikely. It's high. I mean, we'll see what he does. I would be kind of shocked if he did that, but a, a double departure, I think, is possible, which would be maybe a 360 month or somewhere in that range, um, which is uh, 30 years. So um, I would expect a departure, but the question will be how much does he add on to the top of the presumptive guideline sentence? Um, and it may depend on how many aggravating factors he finds existed. And those, those determinations about the aggravators, it are made based on the evidence that was already presented in the trial, right? There's not another hearing on that. Yeah, and at the sentencing, we would expect to hear from perhaps several family members who will be able to give a victim impact statement. Either they'll read it themselves or they'll have an advocate or an attorney read it for them um, where they can tell the judge and, and the defendant how this impacted them and their families. It's also possible that community uh, organizations or members will be invited to speak. That happens sometimes in a, in a big case like this, um, where they can give a statement on behalf of the community. So that's possible. So we're hearing that it will be like eight weeks before sentencing. If there is an appeal, does that come before or after the sentencing or either one? Um, the appeal will come after sentencing. So actually the the timelines, and I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I don't remember the precise time because I, as a prosecutor, this didn't apply to me, but the defense has a certain number of days, I want to say 90 days, maybe after the sentencing. So the sentencing sets off the timeline for filing an appellate notice. And really, it's just a notice of appeal. It's not even the brief. So they file that they are notifying that there is an appeal and then they order up all the transcripts from the court reporter. So they'll have to have, they'll have all the pretrial hearings and the jury selection and all of that transcribed. So that takes quite a while, especially for a big trial like this, it'll, it'll take months because the court reporter is also, by the way, you know, working <laughs> during the day. So it can take a long time. And then once the transcripts are in, there is a deadline then to file a brief. But yeah, usually the briefs are filed and then oral argument occurs around 12 months after the sentencing. Yeah, I think the, the publicity and the, um, the public comments that happen during the trial are probably the biggest, uh, biggest avenue for appeal. Is there any possibility that they don't appeal? I mean, obviously they have the right not to, but do you think that they- Not for, a, he, they will, he will, yeah, he will, yeah. And of course, I guess if the sentence goes beyond the guideline sentence, then that leaves an issue for appeal too. Whether it was warranted, whether it was, whether the increase was too much, something like that. Any chance that they appeal based on like the different charges? How that plays out given that, you know, it was manslaughter has a negligent mental state and then the murder charge had a reckless mental state. Is there any reason that that could be an appealable issue? That was my question as well, actually, about the third, the, about the manslaughter charge, because wasn't that 
um, an issue in the Noor case and just up at the Minnesota Supreme Court? The third degree murder um, was an issue whether uh, whether the evidence matches the the statute or the the charge. So yes, I would imagine maybe that would be like sufficiency of the evidence to hold him accountable for that. The difficulty will be that he's not sent. He's I mean, presumably he's not even going to be sentenced on those two. So. I mean, he can appeal being convicted of them, but uh, and and likely he will appeal whether his mental state met any of the, whether the evidence of his mental state met any of the um, charges that he was convicted of. So he will likely be appealing on those issues. Yeah, but you know, even if he wins and gets one of the other ones overturned, it he still has to face sentencing on all the remaining charges. So. Um, I kind, I, I mean, who knows, but I don't think he's going to successfully get any of them overturned on the state, not meeting the, the elements of the offenses. Um, I feel like the evidence meets the offenses, but even if he did, as I say, the other ones don't go away. So, um, I, I have a hard time seeing a scenario where he gets his both the second degree unintentional and the third degree murder reversed, which are the two higher penalty offenses. So it's like it won't make it won't have an outcome in the time that he spends in prison, potentially. The day after the Chauvin verdict, the Federal Department of Justice announced that it would open a pattern of practice investigation into the city of Minneapolis and the Minneapolis Police Department. On the next episode, we will listen to law professor and former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance and discuss the role the federal government can play in starting to address these harms. As we close this episode, we want to take a few moments to acknowledge the history that was made with the verdict in the Chauvin trial. For the first time in Minnesota history, a white police officer was convicted of murder for the killing of a black civilian. Justice would be if George Floyd were still alive today, but holding Derek Chauvin accountable for George Floyd's killing is, we hope, a significant step on the road to real change. There's a meme that's popular in Minnesota right now, Nobody thought the revolution would start in Minneapolis, except Prince. But it's important to note that this guilty verdict and the possibility of a revolution of serious and sustained efforts for reforms that truly address the problems of systemic racism in this country, none of that might have happened without the courage of a teenager and the tools to document the human rights violation that occurred on May 25th, 2020. As we see in our work around the world, new and emerging technologies have opened tremendous opportunities for using technological tools in human rights monitoring and documentation. Mobile technologies such as smartphone video and mobile platforms make it easier than ever to shine the light on human rights violations and to share that information widely. Documentation of human rights violations is critical for identifying facts that can be used to analyze where a system breaks down and to recommend responses to address the problems. We dedicate this episode to Darnella Frazier, the young woman whose bravery and quick thinking led her to document on video the extrajudicial killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last May. 
We're thankful for her bravery and for her willingness to bear witness. Until next time. Thanks for listening to The Advocast, presented and produced by the Advocates for Human Rights. To learn more about The Advocates and what we do, visit theadvocatesforhumanrights.org.